finishing up Jonah this morning. I want to start with this. Have you ever been in a church of any kind that, from your perspective, gets too big too fast? Too big, too fast, it's not to your liking, new people are showing up. Uh, Very often this happens, you know, you feel like you have a seat of honor at your church, like you are a person who is well-loved and appreciated, and then other people show up and, and they are starting to be given opportunities to lead and to serve, and you feel like your little territory is being diminished because other zealous and excited people are showing up on the scene and you're just like, wait a minute, they're not even going to do it right. They don't know how to do this. Like, I know how to do this. How come you're not asking me to do this? Then you get super offended because uh, your church has people who are trying to serve in certain ways and they're screwing it up because this is the first time for them to do it. They don't know how uh, all the ins and outs work. They don't know the back channels. Well, who's really in charge of Genesis or how does this really work? And so... Maybe the ministry approach changes, and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't this thing. Or uh, maybe the staff or the leadership changes or adjusts, and you no longer like it, and you just think, man, I need my space. I want my old church back. I want my old church back. I want my old things, my old structures, I want my old people. I want to kind of know who's there and who's not. I want to know the names. We've probably all said this before in some way. I want to know the names of everybody at my church. I'm like, okay, well, you know the moment you do that, you have locked your church in time and space. And I'm going to say this to everybody, you should never know the names of all the people at your church. You should always be like, who is that person? Who is that person? Remind me of that. And I don't mean that to be like some of you who are really bad with names, be like, oh, praise God, finally, like Hans gave me permission. But I mean that to say that there will always be or should always be people who have just come to know the Lord, have just moved to town, are trying to get connected, uh, who have never heard of your church before, who came with a friend. That should be a part of church life. But very often, we don't actually want it as much as we say we do. So we say like, oh, we're missional. We want to see everyone come to know the Lord. And then the moment that demands something different of you, you're like, well, maybe, I'm, maybe I really don't care that much. Like the moment that you have to lead a community group or the moment you have to see your community group multiply or the moment that you have to uh, step in somewhere or the moment that you start to serve on the first impressions team and we ask you to be here at 10 o'clock. Uh, and you're like, that's so early. I'm used to getting there when the service starts at 1035. And we go, it never started at 1035. Uh, you started at 1035. Right, so, so you have kind of that thing. We go, we want you here at 10 because we want to pray together, discuss what's going on, get ready for the Sunday. And when people get here and you go, well, I don't want to, I mean, I want to see the church change, but I don't want to change. I want to see the church grow, but I don't want to grow. That's sometimes what we're saying when we do those things. There is something in us that kind of has the spiritual conditions of the church that we want, the relationships that we want. It's controllable. We're in charge of the things that we like. We participate in the things that we like. We want certain things. We don't want certain things. We have everybody's number. We're able to reach out to anybody that we want at any time, and we kind of have our little spot. And if that starts to change, and it's true for me, it's probably true for you, that disruption can really start to affect us. We go, I like it the way that it is. And because I like it the way that it is, it must be what God wants. Because I wouldn't feel good about it if it weren't what God wanted, right? Because our affections and God's desires have never, ever been out of line with each other. 
So you go, well, I like it this way. So because I like it this way and I'm a Christian, this must be God's thing. This is the desires of my heart. He's giving me the desires of my heart. We have all these ways to talk about how we're in the right and we're doing what God wants. But perhaps our perspective, and I'm going to use a word that you might think is too strong, but I would think when we get to Jonah 4, it may not be. Perhaps our perspective is egregious towards God, that God is completely angered by it. Not that he's like, get out of my sight, you're never my Christian, not that kind of thing, but it's just a position that is totally upside down compared to God's heart. Now, with that in mind, I want to look at this idea. What is God's heart for the world as we see it in Jonah chapter 4, and how do we respond Jonah 4 is the chapter of Jonah that ties chapters 1, 2, and 3 together. If you only look at chapter 1, you have a great story about a guy who fled, and right at the end of chapter 1, he's swallowed up. If you look at 1 and 2, you have this great story about God's forgiveness and restoration of a guy. If you end at chapter 3, you end with what seems like the obedience of Jonah and the repentance of Nineveh, and all is right with the world. But only when you get to chapter 4 do you realize how far off Jonah still was, even though he had preached at Nineveh. How far away from God's heart and God's desires he was. So we're going to see two things. Jonah's anger and God's lesson which will lead to God's heart. Jonah's anger, God's lesson, which reveals God's heart. It's a pretty easy flow. Remember where we left off, Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites go, who knows? God might relent. And what do we see as chapter 3 ends? And God saw their heart, essentially, and he relented from what was going to come upon them. So I'm going to read Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This just happened, okay? God's mercy just came. Jonah knows it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That I, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Is this, is this the right emotion to have right now? Is this actually good for you to feel this way? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth, a little, a little area to sit. He sat under the shade till he should see what would come of the city. Just so you know, he was hoping that the judgment would still come, and fire would rain down, and the Ninevites would be destroyed. So he was getting a front row seat, got his popcorn ready, and was going to see the Ninevites get wiped out. Now the Lord God appointed a plant made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. It's hot. So 
God was providing graciously shade. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and it attacked the plant so that the plant withered. This is all God's lesson. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die and to live. But God said, here's the question again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? This is the right thing to be bugged about? And he said, yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, the whole people, ends with a question, and many cattle, and also their cattle? And it is there, as you hear that passage, that you see these two worlds, the world of Jonah and his hard-hearted approach to what God would do and the world as God would want it to be, with his heart open wide for even Ninevites like you and me to find salvation, for Gentiles to find salvation. It starts, this passage starts with just Jonah's ridiculous anger, his ridiculous anger at God's good character. God's good, and he is loving, and he is gracious, and you see it in the first four verses. This is actually the way he has always felt. He's always felt this way. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What is the it? It displeased Jonah. Well, just look back in chapter 3, and you'll see it. Because God was merciful and didn't bring judgment on the Ninevites, Jonah was angry. It, God's mercy and his relenting, angered Jonah. God has been concerned about Nineveh's evil starting in chapter 1 from this story. And he did not want them to continue down the path he sent Jonah, but Jonah was only concerned about his own life and not what God wanted. Remember in chapter 1 there's a commission chapter 2, there's a prayer. In chapter 3, there's a recommission. In chapter 4, there's a prayer. So we have a prayer in chapter 2. We have a prayer in chapter 4. The prayer in chapter 4 is kind of full on how Jonah had been feeling. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is it not what I said when I was in my country? Which means that he was feeling this way already. He was feeling this way in chapter 1. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. He knew they'd be forgiven. He didn't want the Ninevites to be forgiven. That's why I made haste to flee. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So therefore, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. 
Look at the content of the prayer. And, and I'm going to give Jonah this little bit of credit. Maybe I shouldn't use the word credit. He's honest about how he feels with the Lord. So he's not hiding the fact that he was angry about it. So I appreciate that in Jonah. I'm going to give him, you know, if I were giving him marks, you know, good job, Jonah. Way to not hide how you were feeling. If you could even do that. So Jonah says, hey, this is how I felt. This is what I knew would happen. I knew this would happen. I know you. I know how you'd act. I know that you're loving. I wanted to avoid the whole situation, and I would rather be dead. Well, someone did. Uh, Jonah was not the only one up on the hill at that time. There's actually a live look. Somebody had a a camera, and they have a live look at Jonah and how he was looking during that. So we're going to show that to you so you can see uh, how Jonah felt. Uh, Jonah was just, uh, just a crying child in that way, but he was an adult man, so certainly uh, we don't give him the same kind of grace that we might give a crying child. So there he is. I'd rather be dead. That's how he felt. I don't want this. I do appreciate Jonah's honesty. Didn't hide how he felt. You read only chapters 1, 2, and 3, then you get a story of a guy who was mistaken and corrected. And it ends well. Chapter 3 ends well. Chapter 4 shows us that there has been this part of Jonah the entire time that was angry about what would happen. He was frustrated about God's mercy, and he did not want it to come about. While Jonah's relationship in Israel and ours in the church is not the same, not the same type of relationship, but we are God's people. It's still funny how God's people today have a similar approach to what happens when God is merciful. We don't like it, right? I mean, imagine when, when so maybe God saves somebody out of their addiction, And they come to our church and they're just raw and they're exposed. Perhaps God saves somebody out of a background that you might look at and go, oh no, that, that kind of lifestyle, we just could have no, no part of that here. Right? It's not as if you, you, you come to the Lord and then all of a sudden you, you outwardly look different, that you're all whitewashed and clean and ready to go, and that you've learned every bit of sanctification that every other Christian that should have known that by now is already doing. So people who did not know the Lord, were far from God, come to know God, and they start showing up in your church. Well, what happens? The feeling of your church changes. I don't know if I want my kids to be around their kids. I don't know if I want their influence. I don't know if I want it to be like that. I don't know if I want to sit by them. They don't smell as good as the rest of us who know that we need to smell better. Right? All these ways that we start talking about the fact that God is saving people. Isn't it interesting that we often still, like Jonah did, we talk about it in relationship to how it bugs us. I don't have anywhere to sit. They're taking my seat. This is where I always sit. If you think I'm joking, then you haven't been in church life long enough, and that's a good thing. Because people go, well, I always sit there. Somebody showed up, and they're sitting in my seat. Don't they know that this is where I sit? Don't they know that this is how I act? No, they go, I don't know anything. I've never been here before. I've never, I've never, never been in church before. I've never been a part of this. 
But then you get varied cultures, varied levels of maturity, varied levels of conviction. Isn't it much easier in church life to make no room for Ninevites? No room for different. No room for people who talk differently, act differently, live differently, vote differently than you do. Isn't that something? If you saw it get darker, right? Oh, maybe we'll lighten it up here in a second. But we feel this way. We feel as if our church might affect our lives, but only in ways that bother us. I don't want my church to grow too much. I don't want these kinds of people saved. I don't want these kinds of people around. I don't want these kinds of people or those kinds of people or that kind of thing. And instead, we just make it all about our feelings, our comfort, our friendship groups. And we have built a faith around our desires. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like what Jonah has done? I know you're gracious, and I know you'd forgive, and I know you'd relent, and I know you're merciful. And I know the Ninevites, and I would rather see them get wiped out than saved. That's what I want. The question for Jonah that the Lord brings is the same question that he might bring to us. Do you do well to be angry? Is this this feeling actually the way you should be feeling right now? Do you do well to burn so hotly about this issue? Oh, pastor, you know, I mean, these people, did you know who came on Sunday? These people came. Do you know what they stand for or what they do or how they live? I mean, that's where the Ninevites were, right? I go, do you know me? If you knew me, you'd probably kick me out of this church too. If you knew the stuff I struggle with, think about the anger that I feel sometimes, the ways that I act, the funky convictions that I have. If you knew that, there'd be no room for me at Genesis. Do you do well to feel this way? To blatantly question and be mad about the size of God's heart? To be mad about how you know he would act rather than joyful? Well, God has a lesson to teach Jonah because remember, we're going to say this a lot at Genesis, God's gracious. He doesn't then say, Jonah, get out. I'm sick of this. But now he teaches Jonah a lesson. He's going to use an object lesson, which is a great way to teach not just kids as we saw, but a great way to teach even just adults about how they feel. And he uses a plant. He uses a plant to show Jonah how big his heart is. Jonah went out of the city. He sat east of the city, and he made a booth, an area to sit for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, and he wanted to watch the city get destroyed. He wanted to see the judgment come upon the Ninevites, and he wanted to have a good seat for it, but not be in the splash zone. The evil Ninevites were going to get what was coming to them. Christians who are so confident in themselves often do the same thing. We know how God feels. We know how God should act. We know what God's going to do in this situation. And so we are going to watch it happen. But while Jonah watches, God is gracious. 
and he teaches. So a plant grows up over Jonah, verse 6. And it was shade, and it saved him from his discomfort, that God was actually comforting Jonah, even though Jonah was being a fool. Dawn came, God appointed a worm, and the plant withered. Now he's annoyed. The sun comes out, verse, uh, verse 8, and his head's getting sunburned. Maybe Jonah was bald. To say he was bald, it makes it more fun. But his head's hurt. His head's hot. He's like, I don't want to work out here. I don't want to be out here. The scorching heat. I tell you what, we did a little baseball practice yesterday morning from 10 to about 11.30 in the morning. You talk about hot. I mean, we were drenched when that thing was done. Kids are like, water break, water break, water break. I want to be like, you know, remember the Titans. Water makes you weak. I don't really do that. Though. I'm like, go get your water, please. I want your parents mad at me. <clears throat> so we're out there for an hour and a half with water, and we're going, oh, it is hot. So there's Jonah on a hill with the sun beating down on him, and Jonah's about to faint, and he again, again, goes, it's better for me to die than to live. God appoints a plant. Now, what else has God appointed? God appointed a fish. God commands the fish. God appoints a fish, chapter 1. God commands the fish, chapter 2. God appoints a plant, chapter 4. God appoints a worm, chapter 4. God appoints the wind, chapter 4. Time and time again, we are going to see how uh, things other than God's people obey God's word, obey God's command. The Ninevites obey it. They weren't God's people. They weren't God's nation, chosen, dearly loved. You know, they weren't that. They weren't Israelites. The Ninevites listened. The fish listens. The sailors listen. The plant listens. The worm listens. The wind listens. Jonah, angry. In these four chapters, we see over and over how the people who should be obedient are not. And God is contrasting time and time again Jonah's disobedience with the obedience of others. Plants, people, animals, all of it. The plant grows quickly, and Jonah is happy. He was very happy about the plant. It's the most happy we've seen Jonah in four chapters. I'm very happy about this plant, God. I'm very glad that it's here. I'm glad that I'm comfortable. I'm glad that I don't have the sun on my head right now. This is really nice. Forget the fact that there's people down there, and I would rather see them dead. I like this. I like what you've given me. I like this situation. We got a good thing going, you and me, God. I like it. But just as quickly as the plant came, the plant left. This is again to expose in Jonah his anger, and so now he is very upset about the plant. And again, he wants to die. God comes back with the same question. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? Is this really how you're going to feel? You're mad about your comfort? You're mad about my mercy? You're, you're mad about things you shouldn't be mad about. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die again. 
that same picture of Jonah shows up. Live look at Jonah. There he is, whining about how he feels and what he wants. And this is a word or a phrase that we teach all our kids all the time, right? Don't be selfish. Don't be focused on yourself. Well, it's not just children who need to learn this message, but it's everybody who follows God because in our flesh, our tendency is to turn from God and not be others-centered and God-focused, but rather to be self-centered, me-focused. I don't want to focus on what God wants. I want to focus on what I want. That's what we see every time. I don't want to lead. I don't want to serve. I don't want to engage. I don't want to do those things. I only, I only want to do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. That's what I want. So then the Lord speaks. We see this in verses 10 and 11. The Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant. You pity the plant. You did not labor. You did not make it grow. Which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You pity that. Shouldn't I, right, the Lord, shouldn't I pity Nineveh, this great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. If you heard uh, the translation Carla read in the kids' video, right, who don't know right from wrong, who have, don't have discernment, shouldn't I care for those? And also much cattle, this whole people, this whole group, shouldn't I care? And it's funny because, right, like, you want resolution in a story. And what happens here is it gets brought up to this question, and then it just hangs, Jonah leaves you here. You don't go, oh, why? Because sometimes as these biblical authors are writing what they're writing and the Lord is inspiring it, we're left to fill in the gap. Shouldn't I be? Right? Like, like right after that should come the answer, right? The resolution to the story. But if you have been tracking in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, then you should know the answer. Yeah, Lord, you should care about them. And, and, and you know what else? I should care about them. I should care about them because I'm yours. Why am I so concerned about a plant and my comfort and your mercy and other people knowing you rather than me being concerned about my own comfort, my own plant? Why, 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 why do I get bugged about the things I shouldn't get bugged about and get happy about the things that only involve me. That's so often our experience. It's how we live. It's how we think. The book of Jonah ends with a question because we have to decide the answer. Jonah doesn't recognize God's action he offers no praises to God. He's happy with the plant, and he's angered that it is removed. God, with the Ninevites, made in his image, in God's image, asked if he should be concerned. Should God not be concerned about Nineveh? Yes, he should. I want to just say this to anyone listening who be it adult, a child, somebody who feels as if God does not love them. God loves you. God loves you more than Christians do. 
God loves you more than your Sunday school teachers do. God loves you more than your pastors do. <laughs> Any human relationship where you feel the most love, God loves you infinitely more than that. The Father sent the Son into the world to save you, to save me. Like the Ninevites, God's salvation is not based on your ability to discern right from wrong because you can't. Without him, you don't see it. You don't know it. The Ninevites likely assumed all was well with the world and it wasn't until Jonah's frustrated and even angered preaching because he knew what would happen, it wasn't without that that their life was disrupted to the point that they thought, I need mercy. Through Jesus, you can receive God's mercy. And very often, the church fails people. We fail people because we don't communicate to them that God loves them, that Christ died for them, <clears throat> and we do a terrible, terrible job of showing it to one another. Because again, we're focused in on <clears throat> our church, our ways, our things, our groups, our friendships. We don't want that to be disrupted because if it gets disrupted, what happens? Well, my life has to change, and I don't want that to change. You know how hard it took me to get these friends? I don't want you to be friends with them. You might be better friends than I am. You might get along more. You might, whatever it is. This is often the way Christians work, the way that we think. But God's heart is bigger. That's why I want to just end with this statement. I've ended a lot of these sermons with questions. I'm going to end with this statement. Let God's heart for the world determine your approach to others. You let God's heart for the world determine your approach to others. Now, what do I mean here? A few things. God's voice is clear. You could quote the most well-known Bible verse, John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life." But if you were with us last year, or you were with us in Galatians, then you should know very well Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, first book of the Bible. So we're following Abraham, and Abraham call, is called by God, and God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We're blessed through Jesus, right? But Jonah knew the call to Abraham, or should have, that through the seed of Abraham, which in Jonah's time and place was the people of Israel, so we were still awaiting the Messiah who was to come, God's heart was for the nations of the world to be blessed. Wasn't Nineveh blessed by God through the preaching of an Israelite? Yeah. Isn't our life blessed by God through the preaching of an Israelite? Jesus? Through the Jewish Messiah? Aren't we brought in and made a part of the family? 
you want to not go to Genesis 12, you could go back to Genesis chapter 1 before the fall. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He created the male and female. Genesis 1, right? 27, 26, 27, right there. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? His image. We're image bearers. But the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, messes that up. God has always been concerned for the world. It didn't start somewhere. It wasn't like, oh, Genesis chapter 12. Let's make this about the world, right? Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, it shows us God's heart for the world to be filled with his image bearers. Where does Revelation end but with a new heaven and a new earth filled with his image bearers? And where is Jonah dropped in there? Angry about a world becoming filled with his image bearers. Obedient to him. Following him. Trusting him. So his voice is clear. If you are only concerned for your own condition and not the condition of others, then there's something about God's heart and your heart that are misaligned. His call is clear. Jesus' call to us is clear. Make disciples of all nations. He has commissioned us in this way. And there's a tension in being missional, I'll use that word, because we regularly come into situations where we are with people we don't like. Where we hang out with people who aren't like us. They don't talk like us. They don't have our experiences. They don't have our stories. And it can become really discomforting. But it might be just what we need. We have to be okay with that because we need to recognize corporately that our heart for the world needs to be aligned with God's heart for the world. Which is every tribe and tongue and language, nation, worshiping Jesus. Many of us need to repent of our own selfishness, our own comfort, you go, oh God, I'll get to that. Where we think church is for us and we get to show up and it's all about our comfort, our things. No, I come here only to get filled up. I'm like, no, you don't. You come here to fill others up. We need you to serve and to give of yourself. We need people pouring in to kids in our kids' ministry. We need people here greeting and meeting and saying hello to folks and involving them in the team and getting them going and seeing them in our community groups. You go, well, that changes the relational dynamics. Of course it does. Of course it does. But isn't changing the relational dynamics worth seeing people come to know the Lord? Isn't our little bit of discomfort in a situation, in a group, in a scenario worth seeing people come to know the Lord? So we might need to repent of our selfish attitudes and our lack of desire to see people come to know Him. God is bigger than our flesh, though. And I'm going to ask you to pray some things. Pray Genesis grows. I got to interact with somebody just via email this week who is going to start coming to Genesis when we start meeting again, and they found us through the live stream. Like, pray Genesis grows. To what size? I don't know. But pray for it. 
Pray you get to see people come to the Lord. Pray you're a part of seeing people come to the Lord. Pray that God uses you in the specific lives of people with real names and addresses and that you get to talk to them about Jesus and that you get to see them saved. And then they show up in your church and you're like, uh, well, usually I get to stand back there and drink coffee and just talk to my friends and now you're here and I got to care about you? Oh, poor us. Caring about people God loves. Pray the global church grows. Pray that God might use you. Ask him how he can use you to bring the gospel to the nations. Is that the funding of missionaries? Is that the going yourself? Is that the praying for specific people? What might that look like? Because our problem is significant. We are narrower in mind and heart than the Lord has revealed his people should be. But God's grace is greater than our flesh and our struggle and our frustrations. And he will meet us in those moments. Jonah teaches us a lot. But one thing is certain and rings full even today. God loves this world fully and completely. He wants more people surrendered to him. And where we might fail to feel the same way, we pray that God's grace grows us in that direction.